0: Okay, Rene Descartes, that's him, uh, was a 17th century, early 17th century philosopher and mathematician, um, considered the father of modern Western philosophy, Um, and although he didn't consider himself a skeptic, um, he set to um, kind of cut off the skeptics um, by what he called uh, uh, preemptive skepticism. So if I can think of everything a skeptic might say, I can get ahead of them and, uh, and, and basically think of everything before they can attack me on it. So he created this thing we kind of call me- methodo- methodological skepticism or hyperbolic uh, doubt. Some people also call it Cartesian doubt. And so what he did was he decided that he would doubt everything that could possibly be doubted that he would find what is true by doubting everything you could possibly doubt. And once he narrowed down everything that had a viable alternative, he would know what could be known, the absolute bare essentials of what could be known. And so he kind of had different levels of doubt. The first level was if you've ever thought you were right and found out you were wrong, it could be something as simple as an actor in a movie or whether or not you put the seat down on the toilet. Like if you've ever thought you were right and found out you were wrong, how can you ever be confident when you're right again? Like Because once before, you thought you were right and were wrong. So if you feel like you're right this time, how can you trust that? And so he eliminated what could be eliminated on that level, like things like memory and, and kind of conceptual thinking, like things that you feel like you're right, but you've been wrong before. You can't trust you're right this time. Uh, and so that kind of took him to what he called a second level of doubt which was kind of the empirical world. So the fact that this is a music stand, could I possibly doubt that this is a music stand? And he came up with a hypothesis, if you've ever been dreaming and thought it was real, how can you ever know that this isn't a dream? We've all played that game. What if I wake up and I'm still in third grade? Like, wouldn't that suck? Um, So he said, although, so he's like, so I may think I feel a music stand, but I could be laying in my bed facing a wall and there is no real music stand in front of me. So he eliminated even the empirical world, the things I can touch and test and, and feel. And that led him to his third level of doubt, which was he was like, although there may not be a music stand right in front of me, I may be in bed dreaming, I can't doubt that music stands exist, or how would my brain have come up with one? So though I may be dreaming a music stand, can I really doubt the existence of the music stand in general? And then he came up with a concept he called the evil demon. It's also been called a brain in a bottle. Or He said, what if there, between me and my experiences there's an evil demon um, that's injecting thoughts into my head? So what if I live in a world where there are no music stands, where grass is purple, the sky is down, and I've got this evil demon that's injecting thoughts in my head, giving me the understanding of what I think is real? It's, if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix, they got that from Descartes. It's the concept of what if I'm just in a bubble somewhere and all the things that I think are real are just being injected. And so he eliminated all those things, even the, the kind of material, formal world in general, he eliminated. And so finally, after doubting everything that could be doubted, he came up with his very famous um, statement, Je pense donc je suis. You ever heard of that? No, because he converted it to Latin, which is cogito ergo sum." I think, therefore, I am. So the thing he came up with was the one thing I absolutely cannot doubt above all else is that I'm asking this question about doubt. I know that I'm asking questions. I know that I'm thinking. I can't doubt that. I'm I'm in some form, wherever I am, even if I'm a brain in a bottle, I'm asking questions about things. And so I'm a thinking thing. So at the basis of what cannot be doubted, he came up with the conclusion, I'm a thinking thing. Because I think, I know that at least I exist. So I cannot doubt, one thing I cannot doubt is my own existence. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here asking these questions about my own existence. So <clears throat> he doubted everything that could be doubted and came up with this this thing, this I am a thinking thing. And because I think, I know I exist. And from there, honestly, in my opinion, using some bad logic jumps, he said, if I'm a thinking thing and I have contemplated the existence of a God that's greater than myself. Um, No thinking thing, if he were the only thinking thing, would automatically think there's something better than him. So if I'm real and I'm thinking these things and I happen to believe in a God, there must be a God, something greater than me that exists. And so he rationally proved God. And honestly, the church applauded. The Catholic Church celebrated Descartes' um, discovery. What's, What's ironic is, he, uh, as the uh, um, legend has it, Descartes, when he, when he wrote "Cogito Ergo Sum for the first time, he stood up and he looked at it and he ran to the chapel and lit a candle to the Holy Mother for giving him that revelation. So he, he was kind of interesting. He also said that um, analytical geometry, that a, a spirit came to him in his room and revealed analytical geometry to him. Um, So he kind of stands as this funny contradiction of this guy um, kind of on the bridge of two major thoughts, medieval superstition and kind of modern rationalism. Descartes kind of sits in the middle of the two as what we call a juxtaposition. His life by itself is a juxtaposition. A juxtaposition is, is this literary term where we set two things side by side just to show their contrast. So if you're watching a TV show or a movie and almost all the characters are crazy they're just all nutty the author will often put one normal character in the story and it's, he doesn't even have to be a major character just his presence lest you think that everybody's crazy because the whole story's crazy they always stick a normal character in there to reveal a contrast between, so you remember what normal looks like to show this contrast between all the crazy characters and this one normal we call it juxtaposition, it's a, it's a literary term So they'll put a good, normal character in juxtaposition to all the crazy characters. And Descartes' life kind of works that way. He's this interesting juxtaposition between medieval superstition and modern rationalism. And our lectionary passage today um, is John 20, and it's the story of Doubting Thomas. And as I studied it this week, I found this story to be rife with juxtaposition, which I thought was kind of fun considering Descartes was also a famous doubter. And so I thought what would be fun is to go through this sermon and pull out some of these concepts in this story that stand in juxtaposition to one another. Um, And so I called my message, Faith and Faith in Juxtaposition. That will make more sense in a minute. Let's read the passage. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Then the same day, No didn't switch there we go now thomas called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when jesus came and the other disciples therefore said to him we have seen the lord so he said to them unless i see his hands the prince of the nails and put my fingers into the prince of the nails and put my hand into his side i will not believe and after eight days the disciples were again inside and thomas with them jesus came the doors being shut and stood in their midst and said peace be to you then he said to Thomas, reach out your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. So this first week of the Easter season, um, the lectionary takes us this passage Um, in John which shows the initial commissioning of the church kind of their first duty Um, but it also highlights Thomas um, and shows kind of his conversion from a skeptic to a believer Um, but the real fun of this passage is some of the some of the concepts that are here and the way Jesus reveals them is almost in contrast to their opposites it's kind of fun the first one is uh, is here it says then the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst, and he said to them, Peace be to you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So we see these two contrary concepts. The church, because of what had happened to Jesus, because they were expecting insurrection, they were expecting... Outward rebellion, and that Jesus was going to be their leader. And Jesus walks right in and turns himself in. Jesus, we talked about this last week or two weeks ago, Peter pulls his sword all the way up at at the garden. He was ready for battle, and Jesus said, That's not what we're doing here. And he turns himself in and goes to the cross. And so nobody knew what to expect at this point, and the church's response was to lock themselves in. They closed the doors, they hid. And it says they hid for fear of the Jews. And so we've got the church literally shut in. And Jesus' first statement when he shows up is, I send you out. And you get this picture of the church wanting to be a closed place. And Jesus saying, That's not what the church does. The church goes, it's sent. This is one of the heartbeats of our church. We've talked about this before. We spend two hours, three hours a week here. And that's all we spend. And that's kind of on purpose. This is not our ministry time. This is the time we come and we get encouraged. We get loved on. We get blessed. People use their gifts to to build us up. And we use our gifts to build them up. And this is where you can come and tell somebody about your week. And this is where you can come and find an ear, find a hug, find encouragement. And then we send you out. It's like Jesus is standing saying, as the Father sends me, so I send you. And we send you out into ministry. And you go out through the week and whether it's in your neighborhoods or in your jobs or in your schools or wherever you are to your families, and that's where you do ministry. That's where you serve and that's where you love and that's where you shine the light of Jesus. And a lot of times you get beat up and you get, you get abused and people don't accept your message and they don't accept you because you carry the message. And it's a lot like carrying a cross and a lot of times we come back in Sunday and we're limping. Because we spend a week out there getting beat up and we come back in and we spend a couple hours getting re-encouraged again and rebuilt up again and then we send you back out. There's a reason we spend the majority of our week out and only a few hours in. Because the church is supposed to be a sending church. It's supposed to be a place where we send out to do ministry, not a place where we gather and shut the doors to do ministry, but a place where we, we come together and we encourage each other and then we go out to do the work of the Lord. So the church is to be a sending place. Our second one is this statement uh, where it says that they were locked up for fear of the Jews and the very first words out of Jesus' mouth are peace peace be with you. Sorry. Peace be with you. Just incidentally, this is just a little side note. The invocation we do at the beginning of the service actually comes from, from this and from Matthew 10 and Luke 10. There's a place where Jesus sends out the disciples And he says, when you come to a house, <clears throat> speak out your peace to that house and, and see if, if it remained, if they were accepting of your peace. And so the church kind of picked that up a long time ago. And so they, they got to where the church started services, peace be with you. And it's almost like, a, are you going to return the peace to me? Are you going to show that you're a peaceful place? Peace be with you and also with you. And that's how you know this is a house of peace. And so it kind of became the church adopted that. They adopted it from here and from those other two passages, and it just kind of stuck It's something that the church has said at the beginning of their services for 2,000 years, which is kind of why we like to do it. But the ethos, the atmosphere the disciples were living in at this time was fear. It was fear, and Jesus came in and spoke peace to that. A lot of times we think the opposite of peace is war. But if you've ever laid in bed when there's no war going on in your life and but at the same time you're just not at peace, I mean, you can maybe argue that there's war in your own mind or something, but if you've ever been in a, a lack of war and still not have peace, you've quickly realized that war and peace are not opposites. Peace is, is the opposite of something bigger and I think it's the opposite of fear. And this is a major, th- major theme in our world right now. Politics, like, I think politics right now are driven by fear. We're all terrified the other side is going to get the, other, the upper hand. That the other side is going to get into power and, and take away some of our liberties, or the other side is going to get into power and, and wreck our nation and run it into debt. Or like we, we live in all this fear in our politics. Like you can see it. Like people post things on Facebook right now, and you can tell they're just, just driven by like, what's going to happen? You know, oh my gosh, if this person. Does this? Then what? Like, and the church is not supposed to be a place like that. Like, and we're all po- we're all political. We're supposed to be political. We take our convictions out and, and we put them out into the world, and that's politics. As we try to find a way to apply our 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 convictions and what we see in the scripture and what we feel God is leading us to do into a greater picture, that is politics. But then when we come together, it's not supposed to be a house of politics. It's supposed to be a house of peace. So we lay our politics down and we come in. And, and when people come into our church, there should be an atmosphere that says, there is no guarantee that the kingdom of America is going to be okay. There is no guarantee that any of the kingdoms of the world are going to make it. But the kingdom that holds our first allegiance, the kingdom of God, is going to be fine. It's going to be just fine. And I can't promise you that when we say, you know what, God is in control. I can't promise you that means America turns out okay. Because that's not in the cards. That's not automatically in the cards. That's that. That's up to a whole lot of things. But I can promise you, the kingdom of God's going to be fine. I can promise you that the book gives us that ending. The kingdom of God's fine. The kingdom that holds our first allegiance is going to be fine. And so when we come together and we gather in that kingdom, we gather in a place of other believers, and we all check our different politics at the door. We hang them on the coat rack when we come in. We can pick them up on the way out. When we come together. To be with us is to be in a place of peace. And Jesus speaks that into this place of fear. He says, peace be with you. Our next juxtaposition, this one can barely even be called a juxtaposition. It's more just a, just a direct comparison. says, so he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. If you forgive any, the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is a seriously loaded verse. We could spend a lot of time on this if we had that much time. This is the passage that the Catholics use to, um, to enforce absolution. They consider their priests as directly vocational descendants of the, of, the, of the disciples. They bear the weight of this verse. So they see this as a direct verse to the priests. And that they have, therefore, the power of absolution. If they forgive a sin, it is forgiven. If they retain it and refuse to forgive it, it's not forgiven. And... I tend to lean that way a little bit. I just believe in the priesthood of all believers. But I think the church has a unique power in the forgiveness of sins. And maybe not in the eternal forgiveness. The Bible makes it pretty clear if we confess our sins to the Lord, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But there's something in the, in the Jewish understanding of forgiveness that's different than us. See, we have this. The Jews, they don't really care what happens in your heart. Like if you treat them with forgiveness, if you, like if they wrong you and and you decide to treat them well, that's forgiveness. They don't care if you still if you hate them or not. Forgiveness is how you act. It's how you display your relationship from then on. We kind of have this other thing. We have this like forgive but never forget. Like you know that like what's the old cliche? Hurt me once, shame on me. Or hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Like like we forgive, but I'm definitely not going to trust that person again. Like. They've hurt me, which is not a Jewish understanding. I mean, we've—if you look at Jesus when he, when Peter came to him and said, "How many times should we forgive? Seven times?" and at that day seven was the liberal answer. Like this was a this was a discussion that was regularly argued amongst the rabbis. Hillel was the one who came up with seven. Shammai was like once, like once only. Hillel was the liberal rabbi. He had said you go as far as seven. So Peter is stretching all the way to Rabbi Hillel when he says, should we forgive seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times, seven times. And if you wrestle with that a little bit, how can you have to forgive someone 490 times if you cut off the relationship and you say, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. Like, how could you possibly get hurt 490 times and forgive 490 times if you don't just put yourself back out there again and again and again? So, there's something in a relationship that says, I have to treat you forgiven for you to be forgiven. Like, I have to be vulnerable to you again. And I think that's the church's job. I think ultimately, when people, like, we say things like God forgives you, but if someone walks in these doors and they don't get treated forgiven, I don't think they will ever feel forgiven. And you might argue that there's an eternal forgiveness that happens, but that person will never live in the forgiveness of God if they don't experience it. If someone doesn't hug them and look at them and say, by the authority of Scripture, you are forgiven. And the Bible says, when I tell you that, then you're forgiven, and it's gone. That's the church's job is to communicate that to people. We're to be a place that when people come they don't just rationally you know, read a scripture and have to believe that they're forgiven. They get to see it in people. They get to see people treating them like they've been forgiven. No matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter what they've walked, they come and they see people loving them, just loving them like they are. That's more powerful than any verse you can quote to somebody about forgiveness. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. When you forgive somebody, when you embrace somebody, when the community takes somebody in and treats them forgiven, they'll be forgiven. They'll be forgiven. But if the church comes in and, and we see somebody and we see a background, we see a past, we see issues, and we go, you're welcome here, but, you know, we're, you know, we're going to embrace you and like, bring you into the fold. And, like, a person will never live in forgiveness. They'll never, like, their sins are going to be retained. So, I think we're supposed to be a sending place. We're supposed to be a peaceful place. We're also supposed to be a forgiving place. And that brings us to our last one. And this is kind of the, the big one that I think John was really after here. It says that uh, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Now the story tells us there's eight days between these two stories. Um, you know, they, they, they come and Thomas isn't there. And eight days later, they come and Thomas is there. And I'm sure some things happened in those eight days that if this was a chronological writer, he would have stepped through the things that happened in between. But this is John, and he's a creative writer, not a chronological writer. So he, he kind of squeezed these two things together like they happen almost back to back, I think purposely so that they would stand in juxtaposition to each other. That We have, we have the ten, and then we have Thomas kind of by himself. And this brings up the main characteristic of this passage, which is, Thomas's Doubt. Um, and We call him Doubting Thomas through history um, because of this. But um, before we get into Thomas's Doubt, there's a little misconception about doubt, in my opinion. Um, Doubt is not the antithesis of faith. I don't believe doubt is the opposite of faith. I think doubt is an essential element of faith. Um, When we read what faith is, it says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You could argue that Things not seen or things doubted. Faith is the evidence of things that are doubted. Um, If you go back to Descartes, something huge happened at Descartes. The reason I bring him up was this. There was a huge shift in thought at Descartes that nobody caught when it happened, but it showed up throughout the entire next generation of philosophers. What Descartes did when he supposedly proved God rationally and the, and the church actually embraced this and accepted it, was he shifted the, the measuring stick of truth from God and the Bible and the church and tradition and the fact that the majority of the world believes in God and he shifted it to his own rational brain. Because now God wasn't real because all these other things said he was real. God was real because he made sense to me. And so now the measure of what is real, of what is right, is now my own rational ability. It's my own ability to comprehend and understand. And so a major shift happened in thinking at this point where where the scripture and the church lost its authority to speak about truth because all the thinkers followed Descartes and said, truth is what my brain considers to be rational and true. And everything shifted at that point. And... We call it doubt, we call it unbelief, but what it really was was a shifting of faith. We took our faith from God in the Scripture and we placed it in our own mind, in our own ability, our own rational thinking. So we didn't have a doubt problem, we had a faith problem. We chose to believe something different, which was my own rationality. Um, Thomas is doing this. Thomas isn't doubting, he's just saying, I trust my finger, my hand, my eyes, more than I trust the Word of God. Until I can do something empirical, something I can touch and feel and test, I just won't believe it. I'm not going to believe a word. I'm going to believe me. If I were to reach in my pocket and pull out a quarter and say, I'm holding a quarter, do you believe me? If you say, Yeah, I believe you, you know, if you say you got a quarter, you got a quarter. That's believing me. That's faith. In, in me, If I show you that quarter and say, I'm holding a quarter, do you believe me? You might say yes, but you're not really believing me. You're believing your memory, what you remember a quarter to look like. You're believing your eyesight. It looks like a quarter. You know, like you're, you're really believing you at that point. You're no longer believing me. You see the difference? It's still faith. You're just putting your faith in yourself rather than in me. And that's what Descartes did. He said he put his faith in his own rational ability. And that's what Thomas is doing. Thomas is saying, I trust me more than I trust you. When I can test it and taste it and see it, then I'll know it's true. So doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is part of faith. Doubt is is choosing to believe something I can't test. I can't touch and see. Choosing to believe something I doubt is part of faith. Rationalism is Faith and rationalism, if that makes sense. So that's why I called my title, of my, that's why I gave the title of my sermon, Faith and Faith in Juxtaposition, because they're both faith. But we do get something good from Thomas's doubt, and this is how we doubt. Understanding that doubt is really just misplaced faith, let's talk about how we should do it well. The first thing we do is we own our doubt. I think this is really important because Thomas comes right out and says, unless this happens, I'm not going to believe. I think this is a healthy thing. I think this is something we're afraid of in church. I think this is something we struggle with because we don't want to be judged. We don't want people to think less. But I think uh, one of the best conversations Dale and I had was when I told him I had trouble with some verses. And he said, you know what? I read a passage last night and I just hated it. Like, I just didn't like God at all in that passage. I was like, I know, me neither. And it was, a hell, it was like a freeing thing to say, neither one of us get that. It's weird and we don't like it. And that's okay. I mean, what's funny is we talk about God being a living God, but have you ever known another living person you get, a, you get along with 100%? Not if you spend any time with them at all. Pretty soon you'd want to rip each other's eyes out. You know, you're like, there are times when you can't stand each other. And yet, we're afraid of that with God. We're afraid to say, I don't like you in this story. Like, I don't like you at all, honestly. This one really confuses me, or this one, I don't know what you were getting at there. Like, we would do that with another human we're in a relationship. You know, if they said something we didn't like, we'd call it out in a second. So, for some reason, we're afraid of that with God. So, I think the first thing we do is we own our doubt. We say, There are some things in this story I just don't buy. And until God reveals it to me, I'm not going to swallow that one. I think that's healthy. I think that's perfectly fine to do that. The second thing we do is I don't think we should settle for anything less than God. Anything less than God answering our questions. I think we have a tendency to want to convince ourselves. We want to fit in so bad, sometimes we'll we'll swallow things we're not really believing yet. And I don't think that's right. I think we just... I think we hold out and say, I want God to answer this one. I want God to meet me. I mean, Thomas said, unless I... Like, how number one how gross is that i want to stick my hand in the ribs before i believe but number two how bold is that like i'm not going to swallow this one until god is in my very presence revealing it to me i think there's part of us that should do that because any real revelation any real change that we're going to have is going to come from god anyway like otherwise we're just playing mental games i think we just hold out and say god answer my questions I'm just gonna sit where I am until you do. The third thing we do is, when God does answer our doubts, we submit. That's the thing I love about the story. The second Jesus said, "Here's my hands, here's my side," Thomas just says, "My Lord and my God." No more questions. I think sometimes doubt can reach a point where we're doing it just, just to be crappy. Like we're just doubting because we're we're mad and we just want to doubt. Like. We're not really asking real questions. We're not really digging. We're not really hoping God answers them. We're just angry. We just want to, because a lot of times an answer will come, we're like, oh, yeah, well, what about this one? You know, we just we just shift our doubt somewhere else. I love that Thomas, he draws a line in the sand, but the second that's answered, my Lord and my God. Like, I submit. Uh, you answered my questions. I'm all in, which I think is beautiful. And the last one and the biggest one, this is the one that I think is most important. Is Thomas stays in the narrative. He stays part of the community. We have three statements from Thomas in, in the Gospels. He speaks three times that we know of. One, we actually talked about in the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus says, we're going to go into Jerusalem where I might die. And Thomas goes, oh yeah, let's all go with him so we can all die with him. Like this kind of sarcastic, cynical, oh yeah, well, I'll just go to Jerusalem and die. The second one, Jesus says, I'm going to a place where you can't follow me, a place you don't even know about. And Thomas says, where in the world could you go that we don't know about? Like he's, he's there being the cynic. Like, and what kind of place is there that we couldn't follow you? And the third is here, where he says, unless these things happen, I'm not going to believe. Thomas speaks three times. All three times, they're cynical and or sarcastic. But the beauty is, he's always there. He's doubting all along, and he's there all along. Anytime in the scripture... When you read Jesus and the Twelve, Thomas is one of them. And he's there with all of his questions, with all of his cynicisms, with all of his sarcasms. He stays locked into the story. The biggest bummer about the Christian community is when someone doubts, we generally prefer for them to do it elsewhere. Like, we don't welcome their questions. We don't welcome their concerns if someone comes in here and goes, I like being here. I don't even believe in Jesus. I don't, definitely not the resurrection, not, not miracles and stuff. But you guys are cool. Then this is where they belong. Bring all those questions and all those concerns right into the midst. And wrestle with them here. We'll wrestle with you. And that's healthy. That's where it's supposed to happen. To say, well, I'm sorry, we're a community of people who believe in Jesus, so find another place. <laughs> that's not right. Thomas, like how can you ever get your questions answered if you run from the community every time you have a concern or a question or something you just can't swallow? I I think the church is supposed to be a sending place. It's supposed to be a peaceful place, a forgiving place. I think it's supposed to be a doubting place. I think it's supposed to be a place where people can come and wrestle and struggle with their questions and find someone else who might be struggling too and dig together and find answers together. Jesus commissions the church in this passage and this is who he calls us to be. He calls us to be ascending people, a peaceful people, a loving people, and a doubting people. He never rebukes Thomas here. That's the thing. He does say, yeah, it's better. Blessed are those who believe even though they don't see. But he never rebukes Thomas. He offers him the nail holes. He offers him the hole in his side. If that's what you need... That's what I'm here to answer your questions. I think we have to have that atmosphere. So as we come to our response time, as we sing and gather around the table, and as we give all in response to God's word, I hope we can imagine Jesus Jesus standing in our midst, speaking peace, calling us to be a place of forgiveness and sending us out into the world to do His work. But mostly I hope we can imagine Jesus fearlessly allowing and welcoming our doubts, calling us to be a place of authenticity, a place that allows people to own exactly where they are and allow God to meet them there in His time and in His way.